Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Now, our next panel is, uh, has, has a peculiar name. It's what the National Academy study on energy efficiency didn't, that's did not, tell you. And this panel is moderated by Jonathan Kumi. So uh, if I can get uh, Jonathan to come out here and speak. Here he is. So I know to take the central podium here. I'm not sitting at the table with my speakers. So I, I also was a grad student of arts, and I learned how to do uh, efficiency potential studies from him. A few years after I finished my PhD, I uh, had a grad student, Deanna Vorsat. She was my first grad student. She's at the Central European University. And a few years ago, one of Deanna's grad students came to Lawrence Berkeley Lab to learn about efficiency potential studies. She just finished her dissertation last year, uh, Sasha Novakova. And uh, I, I told my wife this, because this was, of course, a, a source of great pride. And she said, she, she likes to tweak me a little bit because she's a little bit younger. She said, does that make her your grand student? And I thought for a second, I said, yeah, I guess, I guess it does. But uh, I just wanted to let Art know that his great grand student is doing terrific work in Hungary. So with that, uh, the way this uh, panel was initially framed was to talk about uh, the National Academy study on uh, energy efficiency, but we wanted to actually cast the net a bit broader. All of the people on stage here have extensive experience in analyzing efficiency potentials and efficiency policies in different sectors. And so the goal for this session is actually to talk at a very high level and understand what some of the missing pieces are to these studies. We've all been doing these studies for decades, and uh, there are some things that are commonly omitted that I think uh, we could actually uh, do better at including in, in future work. So uh, I'm going to introduce the panelists in a second, but I'm going to first charge them with a couple of areas uh, on which to focus. One, in these assessments of efficiency potentials, generally uh, we're missing out on something the economists generically refer to as increasing returns to scale. And so that would include uh, learning effects, learning by doing. That would include uh, manufacturing economies of scale. That would include uh, zero marginal cost of reproduction, say, for information uh, sources. And these factors turn out to be critical. And it's not just the bottom-up uh, engineering models that omit these. The top-down models, by assumption, omit them as well. Now, they do that for reasons related to wanting to avoid multiple equilibria, wanting to avoid path dependence, but the world is a path dependent place. And our studies, technically, uh, the technical studies, tend to omit these effects for more practical reasons, namely we don't have the data. So one of the, the high level issues that I'd like the panel to address is this issue of how to incorporate these learning effects more uh, effectively in these studies. The second is the, the question of, we, we can do these technical assessments, which we often do. What are the most effective ways to integrate real policy effectiveness into these analyses so we get actual policy, achievable uh, policy potentials as opposed to technical potentials? So with that, I'm going to introduce our panelists very briefly, and then 
they're off and running. I think David Goldstein would like to speak first. Mark Levine will speak second, even though he would like to speak last. And Dan Sperling will speak last. So uh, David Goldstein is at NRDC. And uh, I think one of his most critical contributions uh, was actually about 20 years ago negotiating the efficiency standards. When he was at NRDC, he negotiated the efficiency standards with industry, the first ones at the national level that came into force. So bravo for that. Uh, Mark Levine uh, was my boss, my first boss at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. And one of the things about which he was uh, most prescient was understanding that China was really key to understanding uh, energy and, and carbon going into the future. And so back in the late 1980s, he started forging relationships and building a research program around, uh, around Chinese energy use. And that is the area on which he focuses uh, today. He's the leader of the China Group. And uh, Dan Sperling is head of the Institute of Technology uh, of Transportation Studies here at Davis. And I know that he's one of the deepest thinkers on this issue because every time I made a foray into uh, transportation efficiency, work that he had done popped up and ended up being extremely useful to my work. So with that, I will kick it off with, with David and uh, he'll make a few remarks. The goal here is to have interaction. So first interaction between the panelists and then interaction uh, between the panelists and the audience. And I will uh, rule the timing here with an, an iron fist and a velvet glove. So we're going to finish on time. Uh, thanks, Jonathan. And uh, for those of you uh, who are not familiar with this already, you introduced the concept of grand student. Uh, I'm Enrico Fermi's grand student because I'm Rosenfeld's graduate student on energy, and that's how I got my start in this field. Uh, what the national studies haven't told you is can't really be explained until you know a little bit about what the studies did tell you. So I'm going to start off with that. The studies in question are the National Academy of Science study, the American Physical Society study, both of which are academic quality, and the McKinsey study, which is more of outreach to the business community. All of these three studies, and they're basically potential studies, as Jonathan was describing, uh, come to the simple conclusion that to use round numbers, you can save about 30% of projected energy use over the next 30 years using known measures that are cost-effective and available and implementable. This is supposed to be news because most of the world doesn't know that you can do this. But in fact, Art led a study in 1978 to 80 that was published by what was then called Solar Energy Research Institute that said you can save about 25% over the next 20 years, which would have been the year 2000. So in some sense, this is just conventional wisdom catching up to what the leadership in the intellectual field were saying for uh, a generation. The two uh, academic studies uh, started off by reviewing other potential studies, because anyone who's tried to do one knows that they're time-consuming and expensive, and you're not going to get a panel of volunteers to do original intellectual research. The review included their limitations, such as the motivation and the scope of the agency that was commissioning them. And what we discover when we look at this is these 30% numbers, as Jonathan intimated, are actually lowball numbers. Because first of all, the agencies that are commissioning them are often setting goals that they know they can meet so they don't get embarrassed five or ten years later when they were short of the goal. They generally exclude new and emerging technologies. And these are all things that the NAS buildings chapter in the McKinsey study say explicitly. 
They ignore non-energy benefits. And they point out something really significant in the political context, which is there is an asymmetric risk of error to the researcher. An error of optimism on efficiency potential can be embarrassing and can get you fired, whereas an, energy, an error of pessimism has no professional risk to it. So what that means is you'll cut off the probability distribution at 50th percentile and only include the bottom 50th percent. And integrated over 1,000 uses, that's a pretty significant deal. Uh, the studies also looked at three ways of describing energy uh, efficiency potential in buildings. You can look at the integrated whole building where you have the most potential. You can look at end uses separately and look at the technologies, or you can describe individual widgets that will contribute to the savings. The widgets approach is the hardest to challenge and is the most data intensive, so that's the one people use, but it's also the most cautious and gives you the lowest value for energy savings. And what's significant, again, is that in saying you can save 30%, these studies are saying, and it might be more than that for all of these reasons. The other very significant point of the study is that the studies is that the charge was to look at technology potential. And the committees in charge of them very quickly realized that this is not just a technology issue. This is an issue of the interaction of technology and policy. And if you don't address the policy issue, at least at some level, you won't be able to define and frame, much less get the right answer. Now what's missing? What's missing is a good framing of the question. The question that these studies answered is, how far can you go in 2030 using 2008 technologies? That's very important because energy efficiency is beset by a whole range of failures of market, and whole books have been written on this. When markets work, they produce continuous improvement. And following the Art Rosenfeld School of Presentation, I have in my hands three props that will demonstrate what happens when markets do function and you do get continuous improvement. In my left hand is a smartphone. These are so much more advanced beyond they were, where they were 10 years ago, I don't even have to talk about it to this audience. This is a pocket digital camera, weighs 185 grams. It takes better pictures in all circumstances than professional film equipment that weighed two kilograms and took up a lot more space. Oh, and you get 5,000 pictures on a roll, not 38. Uh, I said three props. Where's the third one? Well, both of these technologies have in them memory cards with computer storage. In 1998, they were 15 megabytes at state of the art. Now they're 64 gigabytes at state of the art. The takeaway from this is if you did a potential study for technology improvement on these three products in 1998, the manufacturers of these products would have said in 2008, there's no way they could have produced anything with nearly these kinds of specs. So the problem that we have in these studies is what's missing is the concept of continuous improvement and how far you can go with it. Where we have tried in refrigerators nationwide, in Title 24 in California, we have achieved not the 80% annual compounded rate of improvement that we have in megabytes per dollar for digital storage, but 5%, maybe even 6% annual improvement in energy efficiency, holding energy service level constant or actually slightly increasing. 
So the interesting question is, where could you go if you got continuous improvement in energy efficiency? That is, if you really tried. And that's a question that has hardly been framed and almost never been answered. Another interesting missing item is location efficiency, the ability to design transportation systems and urban neighborhoods in a way that m minimizes the need to drive. And a number of studies in the last couple of years have suggested savings of 20 to 40 percent or more in vehicle kilometers traveled over the next 20 to 40 years due to location efficiency policies. Both APS and NAS acknowledge that these kinds of studies exist and that there is a potential, but don't give you any numbers on them. So the real challenge is how do you get there? And this is the policy question. How do you develop policies, looking at technologies, and both of these studies, because of the charge that the committee was under, were unable to look at the issue of policies on how to get you there, although all the panelists, I think, had some very strong and thoughtful opinions on what they would write if they were allowed to do so. Uh, so I've tried to actually answer all those things, and uh, I'm at the end of my time. It would be a couple hours of talk anyway. So if you're interested in the couple of hours, it's uh, written up in a book form called Invisible Energy that will be available next week. <laughs> Thank you, David. So with that, I'll hand the baton over to Mark. Uh, David, did you just start it this week? <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the question that, that art uh, sort of creates the environment for, for uh, asking. In fact, uh, art created the whole environment at LBL concerned with energy efficiency in buildings. So I'm one of many people who can thank art deeply for uh, inducing me into a career that I had no idea would happen. Uh, one aspect of his uh, uh, persona that hasn't been mentioned yet uh, is how he's able to communicate in figures in original ways what really has, is important about uh, any particular issue. Uh, I'll give one example. Uh, we brought appliance efficiency standards to China and we talked about the savings. We talked about it in, in quads. And uh, a lot of people don't know what a quad is, but I'll tell you what they do know. They know what Three Gorges Dam produces. Uh, well, Art was able to translate the appliance standard saving into more than one Three Gorges Dam by 2020. And that was amazingly helpful. Uh, when we described appliance standards in China. So I can thank you, Art, for that, as well as so many other things uh, that have resulted from your generosity. I thought I would cover uh, kind of the nuggets of what I've learned uh, through various studies I've been a part of. I'll start with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And here I'm just trying to pull out a few sort of key uh, uh, pieces of, I would call, knowledge relating to energy efficiency. Uh, the first uh, was that buildings represent the greatest energy savings, the greatest potential for 
carbon dioxide emissions of any sector of the economy. In fact, for 2030, the IPCC uh, noted that potential energy savings from buildings was greater than the sum of industry, transportation, and electricity supply without a, if, if there was no uh, uh, incentive uh, given to uh, uh, <coughs> efficiency supply. Excuse me one second. I need to get some water. The second thing IPC noted, and David's mentioned this, is huge barriers in the building sector to actual adoption uh, of the uh, technologies that are in the conservation supply curve. And the third thing, and something very important, is that when you talk about policies for buildings, if you look globally, you will find documentary uh, evidence for substantial savings from many, many different policies. And so we have lessons from throughout the world that can be applied uh, uh, to buildings in this country and other countries. Um, you talked about the American Physics Society uh, study. Uh, it showed that with current technology, and that David is uh, saying that uh, we can indeed go well beyond current society over time, uh, current technology over time, it showed that energy use in buildings could be flat between now and 2030, which means that if we develop and implement advanced technologies, building energy use can decline in that period of time. Uh, another thing that I think we learned from that study and also looking at California uh, uh, is that there are really three big policies that can have a huge effect on energy use in buildings. They are demand-side management through utilities, uh, and California has the largest demand-side management uh, activity of any state in the union, uh, appliance efficiency standards, and building energy standards. If those three policies were pushed to their limit in terms of cost-effectiveness and in terms of effectiveness of implementation, uh, a substantial uh, part of the problem of growing energy demand in buildings would be uh, dealt with. Uh, the part that can't be addressed by those standards in the near term are uh, the need for new technologies. And uh, in order for that to happen, uh, we need uh, R&D on buildings. And in fact, it's the very R&D in buildings that will serve as the starting point for pushing that conservation supply curve out further uh, in time. Uh, I would note, uh, I, I worked on the building energy performance standards way back in 1980 with Art. And again, he did his magic trick of developing visuals that when we went and testified before Congressional Committee, uh, he had them just in rapture one of, them, one of the members of Congress said, you know, now I really do understand what's going on in this. Uh, and he was instrumental uh, in getting the 
idea of conservation supply curves and CO2 abatement curves uh, to be used as a tool by many folks and ultimately recently McKinsey and Company uh, who has uh, used that technique to communicate to the business community that had been the biggest doubters of energy efficiency potential. Speaking of BEPS, uh, it's very interesting to think back on that time and uh, we can look at enormous savings that were projected by the building energy performance standards back then uh, which have come about uh, and um, I think the glass is half full with regard to uh, that activity and the savings that, that resulted, but it's half empty in terms of all the savings that could be achieved if we can deal with effective policy and uh, new technology. Finally, uh, because I would be remiss if I didn't say anything about China, uh, I, I want to point out that the example of China uh, in buildings is a remarkable one. Uh, the first part is sort of unfortunate. For many, many years, the Chinese didn't really try to do much on energy efficiency in buildings or reduc reduction of CO2 emissions from buildings. And then suddenly, uh, in 19 they had standards on the books, but they weren't enforced. In fact, in 2004, uh, the estimate was that enforcement was 4% of new buildings. Uh, as of last year, enforcement is 95% of new buildings in China. And China is an example of how things can move very fast and how you can go from not paying attention to something to consummating uh, your objective. Another area in which China is remarkable has to do with investment in energy efficiency. They decided in the year 2000 that they were going to increase their investment, which it wasn't known then, but it might have been uh, five or six or eight billion dollars a year. Uh, last year, uh, it was between 75 and 100 billion dollars a year, and it's growing at 40 percent a year. Now, this is a massive investment in energy efficiency. It's bigger than what China will invest, has already invested or will invest in 10 years in wind power uh, by a factor of at least two. Uh, China has a huge uh, program in nuclear power, and we know nuclear power plants are expensive, but the energy efficiency investment is greater than the projected investment in nuclear power in five or 10 years. Uh, so it's been exciting to make this journey and Art, thank you for introducing it to me. Thank you for the support you've given throughout to me and so many other people. And uh, we're, uh, we're very interested in knowing what you're going to do as the next encore to your career. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Dan? So I was a wannabe student of art. Uh, I never quite made it. Um, but I do have a couple anecdotes, and he dropped in in my career and my life over the years. Um, I'm going to talk about transportation. 
and, and if the role of efficiency. Now, let me start out with the problems here before I get to John's questions. And that is, there's a problem of just how to think about transportation in an analytical way, and that lends itself also the problems from a policy way as well. So think about, we want to make transportation more efficient. What does that mean? Well, first of all, we can start with a car. We can make the engine, the comb internal combustion engine, a little more efficient. We can make the tires more efficient, make the uh, transmission a little more efficient, make the car a little more aerodynamic. And that's all good. Then we could take it to, we could kind of expand the boundary out a little and start talking about using different fuels that would either have a carbon advantage or oil reduction advantage, not, not always an efficiency advantage, uh, but then you could take it to the efficiency advantage by putting an electric motor in there and having a battery electric car, plug-in hybrid car, fuel cell electric car. Um, then you could expand the boundary out a little more, and what about making the car a little smaller? After all, most cars are only carrying you know, one person, sometimes two people, uh, two tons, being required to do or being used to do that so why not make the car a little a lot smaller but then you get into questions about the design of our roads the design of our our, our land use systems and then you could even take it expand the boundary even farther out and we could talk about shifting to another mode because it's important to note that in in the united states in particular the the car cars and light trucks account for almost all of the, the surface passenger travel. Mass transit now only accounts for about 2.5% of passenger travel in this country. It, it's just about been vanquished, except for in the city centers. So what about improving or expanding uh, these other non-car services? What about uh, going not only conventional transit, but walking, biking, uh, car sharing, smart carpooling, sometimes known as dynamic ride sharing, demand responsive transit. There's all kinds of ideas out there that are uh, possible, are being used in a small scale in some places. And then we could even go further and just redesign our entire cities, you know, sort of what Dave, David's referring to here about location efficiency, actually taking that concept even further. Uh, in terms of fitting, coming up with a much better type transportation system that is much more efficient, fits much better with our lifestyles and our cities and so on. So all of this is very difficult to analyze, very difficult to study, and that, has, and that makes it difficult for policy. There is no simple metric. When we started the American Physical Society study, uh, at least, you know, we broke up into groups, and on the transportation group, they insisted, you know, these are physicists, right? They insisted there had to be a simple metric, an energy analysis metric we could use to compare all of the options. And they did finally give up on that idea partway through. And, you know, we started talking about uh, how do you include the alternative fuels, how do you include the so-called co-benefits, the co the oil reduction, carbon, road infrastructure costs, and so on. And we all agreed, and I think we all understand, as David says, kind of a, one of our frustrations in all these studies is we really want to get into that policy, and they never let us, at least in these big kind of uh, 
uh, scholarly-type studies put on by the National Academy. And one example of the kind of the policy problem is just uh, an, an illustration of the challenge is with CAFE uh, fuel economy standards for cars, CAFE standards. The way they've been restructured, they are what we call footprint-based standards. And what that means is the standard is actually tied to how much space is under the four wheels of the vehicle. And by doing that, that simple idea, what it does is it, it discourages or does not encourage downsizing of the vehicles. And, you know, I mean, that's a fundamental concept that many of us would talk about in terms of how to make our transportation uh, more efficient. So then we get to the innovation and scale-up issues that, that John's talking about, learning by doing. And I would make the assertion that passenger travel is probably, or at least arguably, the least innovative sector in our society. So that's where we're starting. You know, that's our baseline. That's where we're starting from. And when I say that, um, I, you know, I acknowledge or I know that cars are, of course, much better than they used to be. But in fact, they have essentially the same functional performance, same capacity, same speed, and only slightly better fuel consumption. And, and that's, you know, that's our baseline. And now there's been lots of efficiency innovation, so that's not to chastise the uh, automotive engineers. They've done a great job in improving the efficiency in a technical sense of vehicles, but all of that efficiency was used for more power, performance, size, weight. And so, you know, that's the clash between private desires, what individuals want, and what's good for society. And that's where policy comes in. And that's why policy is so crucial to all of this that we're talking about. So as we think about scaling up some of these innovations and you know, implementing them, the problem in the transportation sector is for different activities or different challenges. And I think, you know, it's, the transportation sector is interesting to look at because it's got a lot of pieces and there's a lot of lessons and they can be, lessons could be fed back to the building sector and the others. A lot of it has to do with the, with the industry organization. So with car industry, there's five or ten big companies and they're basically the ones that are going to be implementing most of the changes and innovations. And, you know, that's both the good and the bad news. The bad news is the startup barriers are immense. It's almost impossible to start up a new company. You know, Tesla is one of the success stories so far, but it's putting out a couple hundred vehicles, you know, when we're talking about uh, tens of millions of vehicles that are being sold each year. Well, actually, we're only down to 10 million in the U.S. Uh, so, um, you know, just looking towards the future, you know, or, or concluding this and then tying it into the future is that policy design, to emphasize this issue of policy, is so crucial. Carbon prices, especially in the transportation sector, are not enough, or, or any kind of prices that are imaginable in the political arena, whether gas prices, carbon prices. And so we need this whole set of other policies to, to make sure that the efficiency happens and to make sure that oil use is reduced and the carbon is reduced. And a lot of it, at least, especially in the transportation sector, doesn't have a lot to do with new technology. Actually, you know, just like in the building sector. And it has a lot to do 
with behavior and institutions, getting people to buy and use different types of vehicles, all that, the whole hierarchy I told you about, moving to alternative fuels, moving to smaller cars, uh, other, mo- other types of mo- modes of travel, redesigning our cities. Um, all of that is way beyond just thinking about some technology improvement. The technology is definitely needed, uh, but in the, at least in the car industry, the, the capabilities, the resources are there. It's really getting, making sure those resources are invested and people are buying them. And so I close uh, with two things. One is uh, everything you heard here is in the, in the book, Two Billion Cars, which came out a year ago, <laughs> but the paperback <laughs> comes out in two weeks. <laughs> one week after David. <laughs> um, but I have a, just one little art story, and that is, uh, you know, I serve on the Air Resources Board now, and, and so he had an influence on us that we, he convinced us, or at least through Bob Sawyer, that we should focus on uh, white roofs and light-colored cars, and we thought that was a great idea. Um, well, very soon there were stories, headlines showing up, California insanity continues. California bans black cars. <laughs> so it points out, it just highlights the need of really a lot of sophisticated people thinking about how do we bring about these innovations in, 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 in a way that is good for society? And we need more arts, and as Andy Hargadon mentioned this morning, we need another version of arts that uh, also, uh, well, art actually did know about all these other pieces, but he couldn't, of course, do everything by himself. So we need people trained in these other areas, in the behavioral areas, and dealing with institutions and policy as well. Thank you. Okay, so, so I'd like to thank the panel. I'm just going to summarize one overarching theme that I think each panelist talked about, then we're going to turn it over to the audience for questions. So all of the people on this panel were initially trained technically. We have physicist, chemist, engineer, and uh, all of them, I think, have realized that these problems are more than just technical problems. There are, there's a human component to this. Anytime you start talking about achieving savings in the real world, there is a human component, and that means we need to think more broadly about the kinds of activities, data collection, and uh, policy activities that we uh, embark upon. So with that, let's turn it over to the audience for questions. Uh, please state your name and affiliation and ask, please, very brief questions. We only have eight minutes. Okay, so the question is, is our obsession with free markets getting in the way of actually achieving something and efficiency? I want to comment on that by parsing the question into two pieces. I think our obsession with an abstract concept of free markets, which doesn't describe how markets really work in the real world, is a fundamental part of the problem. In other words, the idea that you could formulate that there is a technical potential for energy efficiency, and we're not going to talk about policy because it's clean, is based on an economic fundamentalist, I call it, paradigm, that if the technology exists, of course the market will take it up. That's how free markets work. And the problem is real markets 
uh, even in theory, shouldn't work for something like energy efficiency. And even if that, even if all the assumptions that aren't satisfied in economic theory for them to work were true, there are identified failures and barriers that would need to be overcome. Uh, so parse the question the other way. If you come up with policies that can overcome them, and that's what we've done in California to a large extent over the last 30 years, then market mechanisms are actually a very effective way of producing the kind of continuous improvement that I illustrated with the props. So in other words, if, if you don't know what the efficiency technologies are in 20 years and you don't know what the savings levels will be, the best way to do it is to make it profitable to do what these high-tech industries do, which is get 10% better, 15% better in the next product cycle and let the market determine who can do it cheapest and best. Well, I might say a few words. Is this on? Yes. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> In theory, if you believe in absolutely free markets, these energy conservation supply curves or potential studies, that these don't exist. Uh, you know, and for many, many years, economists uh, who forgot that free markets was an abstraction that was far from perfect uh, engaged in an argument that basically said they don't exist. That was a waste of time. That held back policies for many years in this country. Now, uh, on the good side in terms of economists, uh, there's a new branch of economics called behavioral economics that recognizes the many factors that can stand between efficiency and adoption in the marketplace. And that has really been a sea change in my view uh, uh, in terms of the way economists look at this. Uh, and so the, um, the problem with the market uh, has been in, made much greater because in the past the economics community stressed free markets over and above other things. Uh, let me say a couple words about China. Uh, China in 1990, 1991 disbanded its uh, energy efficiency policy apparatus because they became convinced that the market could do it all. From, 19, from 2000, did I say, well, from 2000 to 2000, 2002 they did that. And energy demand took off. And our great worries about uh, energy demand in China, CO2 emissions in China, were greatly uh, exacerbated by that experience. They figured it out and decided in 2005 that they were going to recreate that apparatus. They did, and they saved a huge amount of energy because of it. So there should be no doubt at this point that while markets are important, uh, you need policy to bring energy efficiency effectively into the market. Dan, a quick comment? Well, this is a topic all of us could talk for our religion. One yeah. really quick quick thought is just, you know, we've had cheap energy for so long that I think we've lost the virtue and principle of efficiency in so many areas. And in the end, though, uh, it's, uh, I think we understand what needs to be done. Uh, and we understand that, that, you know, we do need policy that targets different areas. And, uh, 
that's a long discussion. I'll leave for another time. <laughs> okay, so we have a few more minutes. We can take one more question. Please identify yourself before you ask the question. Nehemiah Stone with the Benningfield Group. Sorry? Is it, is it on? Yep, go ahead. Um, the the uh, uh, EIA data has shown that the people that live in uh, buildings with, with five or more dwelling units use about 40% of the energy of people that live in single-family homes. And uh, data from um, the Center for Neighborhood Technology has shown that, that people that live near the urban centers use about 20% or, excuse me, have about 20% of the CO2 emissions of uh, people who live a little bit farther out. What do you think about policies that would explicitly favor uh, a, a more growth in multifamily rather than single family, um, you know, either through building standards or planning standards or through federal uh, lending criteria? So very quickly, because we just um, have a minute. Yeah, I think before we can look at policies to encourage uh, more compact and multifamily living, let's look at overturning the current policies that we adopted, advertently or inadvertently, that encourage single-family housing. Um, the biggest impediment to building location-efficient communities is that it violates local zoning law in just about any place that a builder wants to construct it because high density is more profitable for the developer than low density. Uh, the whole auto-centric infrastructure is uh, government money being spent in a way that encourages sprawl. Um, and uh, in lending criteria, the fact that we're looking at your, the ratio of your income to the cost of the house, whose median price nationwide is $175,000, while ignoring a 30-year commitment to utility bills of $75,000 and to getting to and from the house of $300,000 if it's in urban sprawl seems like a recipe for a massive default crisis. <laughs> and statistically has been shown in a report that we issued a couple weeks ago to have been a significant explanatory factor. <laughs> Very good. Okay, any last quick comments? Yeah. I, one thing I'd like to add is that uh, there is a law in California, SB 375, which heads us in the direction of dealing with land use and transportation. It's a law that puts a cap on carbon associated with passenger travel in cities, and it target it, it's intended for the local and regional governments uh, to reduce uh, greenhouse gases associated with land use and transportation. And so I think this is a case of a policy headed in the right direction, and it tackles this exact issue that, as one city manager said to me, sprawl is the law in California and the United States. And, you know, it deals with how sales taxes are distributed and zoning and traffic engineering. So, you know, I think there's a widespread recognition that this kinds of policies and this kinds of densification, you know, not in terms of, you know, one thing we've learned, you know, now that I'm on the other side, you know, the dark side on, uh, of policy and regulation, you, you can't tell, there's a lot of things you can't tell local governments and people what to do, but you can provide the guidance, the incentives to do something. And I think we've come to a recognition, at least in California, that this is the approach that we need to follow. We haven't figured out exactly how to do it yet, but I think we're headed and starting to head in the right direction. Okay, so that also brings us back to this uh, question of behavior and policy and 
how complex real humans are and how do we get them to do what we'd like them to do for all sorts of good reasons. So with that, I would like to thank the distinguished panel. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.